there's been a few of those moments I can go. Those are those were hard moments in my life. Those six months after Sunlight Temple were definitely the hardest. My guest today is Scott Abbott. He has started 20 companies, sold 11, and built his current company from 50 franchise locations to over 800 in less than three years. He's done this with Princeton Equity Group, which is a 51 Labs client. And today we're going to talk about Scott's journey from his first business to, I guess this is now the 20th business. And everywhere in between, we're going to talk about the pros and cons of working with private equity and what franchisors and multi-unit uh, business owners can be thinking about as they're exploring that. And I want to get into also a topic around how veterans can be exploring franchising. So Scott, it is awesome to have you here. And I would love to start off with, what was your first business? How did this whole journey start? Yeah, it's great to be on here, Jordan. And you've got awesome energy and I'm sure your your listeners just love hearing from you uh yeah first business was in a uh it's kind of a passion business right I think it happens a lot with entrepreneurs we tend to kind of follow our passion and then we try to make money on it uh I mean I I guess I made a small um, not a fortune by, by any means but I could, at least I could pay for some chocolate bars and, and uh, a few dates when I was a young teenager 15 years old I started a company that did uh, fishing tackle distribution so I was into fishing big time. I was in the outdoors constantly with my dad. Uh, a lot of big, big fish kind of experiences like muskie, big pike, northerns, that kind of thing, all from Canada, where I grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. And um, yeah, it was kind of a kind of a natural uh, event, really. Like I was working at McDonald's, my I guess my second real job. And uh, my dad just said, you know, why don't we just build something? And here's these lures we use to catch these fish. And he's always finding new things that would work for him and, and reading up on them. And th these lures weren't being sold in Canada at the time. So we, we struck a distribution deal. And at 15 and a half, I became the exclusive distributor for uh, Sluggo, which was a uh, like a bass bait. And then after that, I took on Stim lures and MNG lures and uh, Bad Dog lures. I just kept on adding these lures we had used to catch fish. And uh, the journey was really one of, you know, trying to make a little money, but also uh, figuring out how to do business, really. And so it was, uh, it was pretty cool. Was your dad an entrepreneur or what did, he, what did your family do? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He, um, my, my father's probably been in that mix of entrepreneurship and, well, d definitely entrepreneurship, but also, you know, he, probably like most people, started as a young father in working for the government, actually in parks and recreation and so forth. And then he had started a concept called, um, he had kind of helped a concept called Canuck, uh, Captain Canuck, which is a, co a comic book series. That is, it was like Captain America when all it was happening back in the, <laughs> back in the, the Captain Canuck. <laughs> we had Captain Canuck and it was like the guy in tights and a big maple leaf on his, on his chest. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. And you know, there was a, it was a 10 series comic book. Uh, Stan Lee wrote my dad a, a letter at one point telling him to soldier on and make it happen and, you know, dream big. And he had especially he had a coin that Stanley sent him like a That's special cool. like Spider-Man coin from when he created Spider-Man. It was actually kind of a cool <laughs> story, but you know, along the way, he'd done a, a number of different things and, um, and, you know, always hustling, working hard and trying to kind of pursue his dreams. Uh, and, and uh, I think I was fortunate because I'm one, I'm, I'm the second of seven kids. 
So there's seven of us in the Abbott in the Abbott clan, and um, I'm the only entrepreneur of those seven. He, my dad gave us all a, a chance at this, but he really invested in me at a young age. He gave me a little office I could work out of in downtown Winnipeg. Uh, you know, gave me a phone, a yellow page book that said like, you know, here's your client list. Call every store that exists in in Manitoba and Ontario, and I got to work, and it was. Um, you know, amazing learning grounds as yeah, how, to, it's, how to work. It's interesting because we have a four and seven-year-old and we're trying to expose them to entrepreneurship. You know, mom and dad did a very different thing doing investment banking and and my wife did uh, corporate and securities law. That's different from doing videos for private equity and LinkedIn posts and websites very uh -huh. different. Yeah. And we're trying to expose them and teach them entrepreneurial lessons. Um, yeah. A great example is a couple of weeks ago, we were at Disney and we were there the whole week. So we did four days in the parks. And then Wednesday in the middle of the week, we went to one of Princeton's other companies, Pertech, and our oh, yeah. seven-year-old came there and she was prepping. She knew the difference. Like, is Starbucks a franchise? No, it isn't. Is McDonald's? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then like understanding what's the difference between a product and a service. Like I love it. you, you yeah. want that, you want that Buzz Lightyear toy? You better earn some money on this Pertex shoot. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Like, oh, that's uh, awesome, Jordan. Starting oh, on. And, and she was so excited. And and but we're trying to figure out how do you establish that foundation in a fun, authentic way when it's not just like forcing them into the business. So what, yeah, what have you done with, with your family? Yeah, there's a balance, right? There's no question. So as you can see, I've got five kids uh, behind me here on the wall. And um, so I'll just go to come back to, I, I appreciate my, what my father did that I try to model and I, and I still to this day do yeah, my, my oldest is 24. My youngest is 14. So there's 10 years between them. Uh, my dad, not only did he kind of help me coach me through that first business and was like a mentor from like 15 and a half into about 20. Um, he also would take me on business trips or invite me to business meetings. So he, not just me, of his, all of his seven kids, we've all been invited at some point to go just, a, we'd go to like a lunch, for example, and he'd be meeting with some, some business partner or some investor or whatever. And I would just sit there, eat food and just listen. And it was just like osmosis, like understanding how do you communicate ideas how do you engage with like, what's even etiquette at a lunch meeting? All kinds of stuff I was being exposed to. Not really, no, didn't know what he was doing other than trying to help me learn, really. For me, I've done something similar. Um, and so my first business was in fishing tackle, right? And I kind of stayed in that industry for a little while. I got into software. And then I started a business called Five Star Painting, which was the very first of my franchise uh, concepts I've started. And that was when like in you, 2000. How old were you when you started Five Star Painting? Uh, 2005. So I would have been 31. And before then it was, uh, I had a, a little software company called Unidime. My dad and I had a fishing tournament called World Cup Fishing. And uh, I had a business that was called a fishing line with my father that was a fishing magazine. So we published a fishing magazine every month and right, you know, did articles and sold advertising and stuff. So, uh, so for me, what I've done is I've included my kids and I rotate them through. I try it quarterly on a dad trip. And I just, they, they come with me to conventions. 
They come to me with to our annual conventions or to an industry convention or the IFA or other events. And I just include them in the conversations, the meetings. Uh, once in a while, if I'm heading out of town to New York or Chicago or whatever, I'll bring one of my kids with me. They'll attend the meetings and just kind of learn and um, just exposing them to the ideas. And then we just have a lot of conversations now, which is which are great around businesses and business models and what are they trying to do? Um, of the five kids, I don't know. Of the five, I'd say probably two of them will be entrepreneurs is my it's guess. It's incredible just like the the journey of how people become entrepreneurs. Some people fall into it. Some people are like, I, I understand what this is and I don't know what the idea is, but I am going to find a way to do it. Um, yeah. So people follow their passion. Like I didn't have a passion for this. Like I fell into doing this business. I didn't have a passion for the first business. Like I've been selling stuff on the, in the community, like bread, shoveling snow. Like it didn't matter. Like liquid <laughs> glucosamine, like whatever it was. Like, I hate, I, I feel sorry for my, for my neighbors growing up. Like, all right, what's Jordan selling again? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's opportunistic, right? It's simply, I need to find a way to get ahead, make some money, kind of create a nest egg. So there's opportunistic entrepreneurs. Like it doesn't really matter what that thing is. I just got to find a way to hustle and make something happen. And then there's entrepreneurs who do it by, it's a passion. Like I'm just in love with fishing. Yeah. So I got to find some way to make a living in fishing. I don't care how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure out some way. And I think other times it's, um, I, what I've seen with entrepreneurs is they're, they're unemployable. Like what they realize is they went to work for somebody and they absolutely hated life. And they're like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I can't do this. So I'm going to find something else. So you have, um, I belong to an organization called Entrepreneur Organization, EO. Unless you've heard of it, but to, you know it's a global organization in Utah. There's 125, 130 members. I've been a member for 13 years, and uh, I have how a lot. How big of is honest... your particular subgroup? How often do you guys meet? Yeah, so like it's a mastermind group. We call it a forum, and we meet every every month uh, for about four and a half hours, where you know cell phones are turned off, and you're in a boardroom, yeah. and that four and a half hours is just trying to unpack being an entrepreneur and what's going on in your head and processing stuff. Right. It's interesting um, you mentioned that because. Uh, for the past year, I've done something called CEO circle and we oh, meet yeah. same, same, same day every month, but it's only for like 90 minutes. And it's with some of the the veterans from 51 vets, the nonprofit who own businesses. Yeah. But I think it might be interesting to lengthen that just to create that space. Like you're saying yeah. four hours. Do you feel like that's a good time? Yeah. The, uh, I actually think it's almost not enough time. And I'll, so I, I'll can just kind of walk you through how we do it if you want. Just yeah. To get a sense of what the value is in, in terms of, of a, of, of a uh, mastermind group like this. And, and, I, and I'll say this, like, once again, 13 years in this organization, 13 years with the same people for yeah. the most part. We've had a few changes, but, like, these are the same guys. I've watched them build $100 million businesses and sell them. In, in some cases, billion, close to billion-dollar valuations. And I'm just so lucky to be part of someone's journey where they where I see them go from like just building something from a very nascent idea to now like a, a brand that's an international or a large software company that's having you know doing, that's doing tens of millions of dollars in revenue. All of this is like super just amazing. But what we do is we get together. You've got you know five minutes where you give an update and you kind of just go through. Hey, what's happening in your family? What's happening in your personal life? What's happening in your business? And we always look for the what we call that one percent. 
don't talk to me about like an update. Like I got a Christmas card kind of thing. Tell me what is the, the moment where something happened that was in that one percentile of your experiences. So you focus on those extremities, the, the kind of the borders of the, the story that you usually don't share with people out in the community. Like you don't, as an entrepreneur, you don't typically go out to a business function and tell people I can't make payroll today, right? But that is happening for so many entrepreneurs where they're struggling as they're getting going. So it's being able to process that. Like, and every entrepreneur in the room goes, yeah, I, I've lived that like 15 times. And I know exactly how you feel. So you, you do that as a kind of an unpacking of your month. And then from that comes all kinds of unsolved, unresolved issues that we would say, are they urgent and important? Or are they not urgent and important? And so you, you put those in a kind of a list and you pick from those. You go, okay, what's the most important thing that I'm dealing with right now? I need to decide if I want to sell my company. That's pretty important. It's undecided. You're not sure if you're going to do it. And uh, you could use some, we call coaching. So you have a coaching session where someone just stands up and, and unpacks, why am I undecided on selling my company? Well, there's all kinds of issues that come from as a founder selling your company, especially if, you, if it's your first one. Selling your first business is so hard because your identity is so, and very often very locked into that business. So you unpack that. And someone well, coaches Five Star it. painting your first business that was a sizable and it was like, all yeah. right, this is the big exit. For sure. Yeah. I, I, I had sold two or three companies prior to that sale, maybe four uh, as I think through it, but, but really, you know, those other ones were kind of like transactional and opportunistic. Five-star painting was something I put my heart and soul into for uh, 11 years. Right. Yeah. And so when I sold that, there was no question that there was a lot of, there's lots of emotions that goes on when you go through something like that. How, um, how big did five-star painting get in terms of like, uh, you know, uh, either franchises or employees, or how do you think about that? Yeah, we had about 125 locations in four countries. So Brazil, Canada, Mexico, and the United States. It, you know, it was um, it was a large transaction. It wasn't nine figures, it was eight figures. Yeah. And it was definitely a, a, enough that I considered retirement. In fact, I kind of told myself I wasn't going to retire. That didn't really last very long. But, um, but I'll actually say, Jordan, that, and I think most entrepreneurs who've gone through this would probably agree with me on this. Probably the most difficult time in my life. There's been a few of those moments I can go. Those are those were hard moments in my life. After selling my business, the first six months after the sale of the company, I would say, we're, if I were to agree with the idea of being depressed, <laughs> that's an actual state of mind, which I think uh, some people might identify with. And I, you know, I, I try to be very positive and look at the bright side of life always. But those six months after selling my company were definitely the hardest. Is that because just the bar was raised and then it's almost, it's similar. I mean, what I ex have heard from veterans who return when they're mm -hmm. a Green Beret, Ranger, SEAL, yeah. a pilot, and they've been at the peak of their yeah. military career. And then the next day or the next couple months, like, okay, now I'm an Accenture consultant or now yeah. I'm like, a, now I'm in a banker. I'm like, what, wait, what am I doing? Like, yeah, was it purpose. a big identity was it driven by purpose or what really caused that? Yeah, I think it's actually everything. It's like, it's a crisis of identity. Like you said, like, who am I now? Before I was the CEO and founder of Pfizer Painting. Today, who am I? What's the, what's my, why do I exist? What's my purpose as a founder or as an entrepreneur? Why do I, why am I on this earth now? Right? Like, like you, you mentioned military. I, I served a, uh, I'm Mormon or LDS, you can call it either. And so I served a mission for my church for two yeah. years. Right. The other dark period of my life was right after I met my mission, after spending two years of 
where you give everything and you, 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 I saved up my money to pay for my mission. And I, you know, spent two years just giving back to the community the best way that I knew how. After that, that was, those six months were so hard because once again, your identity is now changing. Who am I now? What's my purpose? Why am I here? And, and so that kind of transitionary state is very challenging. And I can see that happening for sure in the military or any, anytime you give your heart and soul to something. Yeah. And then where did you go for your, where'd you go for your mission? Brussels, Belgium and Northern France. That's wild. Yeah. I loved it. And then, so yeah, let's kind of, um, is there anything else on the part with EO on just, I mean, the way that we do CEO circle, I think it comes from how bunker labs does it, but we just kind of took some of the things like one personal best from last month, one personal, one business best, what I said I would do and I did or didn't do it. You know, one thing I've learned in the past month. And then we have like, if I'm being honest, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Yeah, Um, that's great. And then, you know, and then it's been really helpful, but I think I like, you know, are there any other kind of takeaways from your experience with EO or any kind of, you know, call to actions that you think entrepreneurs who are, you know, in the franchise business or not should really consider with that? How much does it even cost to be an EO on a yearly basis? It's like five grand, I think, something like that. I don't even know what the price, I haven't looked at the price tag for years. I just pay it. I don't it's probably six thousand now. I don't know. It's five or six thousand dollars to a year to be a member. Um, yeah, I, I think the only thing I, I'd probably bring up is what I, what I love about EO is there's we have a non solicitation policy. I can't do business with any of my form. That's not allowed. There's no business deals, no co investments, nothing. I'd love to, frankly. These are amazing people, but that is the rule. You don't let anything get in between the relationship. And uh, there's also no advice giving allowed. You cannot tell someone what they you think they should do. And so like, there's no coaching on like what if someone says, like, you could have someone who's in the middle of selling a company and you can say, and you know that you should have uh, you know, an advisor to help you do that. You, you don't ever say that. You never made it from a position where you are talking down to someone like you're better than them. You know more than them. It's always peer to peer. And so everything is actually, it's actually, we call it experience shares. So when someone talks about selling a company and they want to hear about, uh, whatever else has experienced, then everyone else just shares their experience as, as that what happened to them when they sold the company. And then the person just takes from that narrative what they want. Oh, you sold your business when you did, you used an advisor. That's interesting. But you don't tell someone to use an advisor. Like you know better. Right? Does that make sense, Jordan? Yeah. So it's a little slight, it's a slight twist. And a lot of people have a struggle with that because as entrepreneurs, and for me, I'm a problem solver. I, yeah. I always think I know exactly how to fix something. If you tell me there's a problem, I'm going to start trying to solve it right away. That's how our CEO circle started. (laughs) And then the second six months, like, dude, listen, here's what you need to do. (laughs) But I think it's a good reminder because it's a, it's a mentality on how you should approach a peer to peer business conversation of here's my experience. Here's what, here's just what I have been through and how we thought through this as a team. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a good reminder that we need to reset um, our mentality and kind of how we're running those monthly CEO circle meetings. But so, I think not just not just there, but I think almost frankly, any conversation with any intelligent entrepreneur who owns a business, I just don't give advice to anyone. I, I it's not something I get jump into. I, I I will share from my experience, and they'll take from that what they will. If someone asks me like, "What would you do?" I mean, I'll tell them. I'm not like that rigid in that thinking, but it's it's actually helped me in a lot of relationships. It's interesting because I. When I think about my personality, um, even things like fitness, I remember, I think it was junior year of college and my dad had just passed away from a brain tumor 
my oh, no. brother oh. later passed away from a brain tumor. You know, those two times in my life when I've been depressed. Oh my um, gosh. Actually, the third time when I was at, had my first job, which I absolutely did not like. Um, <laughs> but uh, he, my my buddy was like, we just came back from playing tennis. He's like, dude, you're kind of fat. You should work out. I was like, yeah, I agree with you. Let's do this. <laughs> that whole, whole whole summer, it was just it was all in. But that direct advice, I I kind of need. But actually, in my personality, it's more I need the direct advice. But I think actually it, it develops the critical thinking muscles when someone does not give that mm. directly because it almost outsources the decision as opposed you know, to thinking through it. Yeah. Like you, you've got to own it, right? Ultimately, you make all the decisions in your life. You've got to own it. You're getting inputs from people. The formatting, I'm just talking about the formatting of the input. I can give you a, a story. You can pull from that what you will. Or I can tell you what to do. What I've just noticed is that there are many entrepreneurs, I'm one of them, that resists being told what to do. It's actually one of the reasons why I'm an entrepreneur. I don't want to be told what to do. I'm not really employable. I've tried. I've spent a couple of years trying to work for somebody. It didn't work out. It was a horrible experience. I learned a lot. I love the people. but I won't, So that I've noticed that that is something that is quite common in a lot of entrepreneurs. They don't like being told what to do. And so if you just reframe it and... And you truly come at, come at this from the view of, you, uh, you said earlier, 5149. Always try and give more value to someone than they give you. It's a, it's a very noble approach to life. And so similarly, I, I've, I've always viewed life as this opportunity to give value to others in some way, whether it's my coworkers, my investors, my franchisees. I'm always trying, like you, I, I've never actually thought of it that way, but I've always viewed life that way. How do I give more value than I get back? I, and I, we created the into our name because I felt coming out of investment banking, sometimes you can have a very transactional mentality mm -hmm. and not in a bad way. It's just cool. Deals done on to the next one and sure. sales done on to the next one. And it was almost, it's, it's almost like a, actually it's not almost, it is a reminder in the name of being medium and long-term in interactions, business, mm -hmm. nonprofit, life in general of yeah. just like, Hey, you might feel like you're getting 49, but in the, in the long run, listen, it's going to work out. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of partnerships and being told what to do, <laughs> maybe that's kind of a jump into some of the fears that people have about private equity. <laughs> so we're going to jump, if you don't mind, just cause I'm on yeah, this thread, jump way ahead to, uh, to five-star franchising. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you have like seven brands. If I remember sure. correctly, you've built it from 50 to over 800 locations in less than three years, over like, 900, but yeah, we're, we're, nine, we keep, we keep notching, we keep adding. Yeah. And by the time that this goes live, it'll be like another thousand. Um, yeah. so what, what was going on through your head? Where was the business at when you decided to partner with Princeton, um, you know, what are the key questions that franchisers should be asking themselves about private equity capital in general? And then maybe some something specific as you spoke with Princeton, just kind of love to learn about that journey that you went through. Yeah. It kind and, of maybe back set to the context of what is the actual business? Sorry for- Yeah, so, so five-star franchising is a platform of seven brands. Six of those brands are home service brands that are franchised. One of them is a services brand that does technology, lead generation, lead handling, customer experience. So- 
the it's a kind of like the, the Pronexus is like the engine for all of the six home service brands, right? So we make the phone ring, we handle the phone call, we schedule the job, book the job, sell the job, and we do that on behalf of all of our franchisees. Um, so that's what five star franchising is. I want to speak to maybe the first of all philosophically, this is important. Uh, for whatever reason, as I think through all of my businesses, I don't know if I've ever had a majority stake. I mean, I have a little investment company that's mine, a real estate company that's mine. Like I've got a few businesses that are, I'm not going to, I'll call them passive investment in businesses, right? Where I'm the only owner. Um, but even in all of those, I invest in a business where I don't have control. And then I look at all the companies I've started, almost all of them. And I'm trying to think of one. I, I don't think I, I don't think I can think of one other than the, the fishing tackle company, where I truly was the one in control, like own majority stake. And I do that. I have done that intentionally. I am comfortable with this idea that if I don't provide value to the organization I'm involved in, I should not be in control of it. Okay. So I'm saying that because a lot of people are scared of using investors like private equity or Princeton equity group as a partner because they, they're scared of giving up control. I've never had that fear. I, I mean, I that's, like, that, well, that is my fear of like, I left investment banking. I don't, I'm, I've been an entrepreneur since I was three kind of mentality of like, I want yeah. freedom of time. I want freedom of location. I want freedom of money. If I want to uh -huh. go do an Ironman and then go to France and then yeah. like, I want to live my life. Like, I don't want yeah. someone to tell me what to do. Like, how have you yeah. reconciled that? with you crushing it and building eight, 900 locations and selling 11 businesses. So there's like pre-private equity in this post, right? So on, in the pre-private equity, I had partners. My co-founder, I've known him since he was 11. We're best friends. Our wives are best friends. We travel the world together. And so I've been very, very fortunate. Like I have the kind of people in my life that I'm very comfortable with. Like if, I know that my co-founder would never do anything to hurt me and I would never do anything to hurt him. That's just how we have that relationship. So, and then we built things that were what I'd call lifestyle, right? Jordan, like you mentioned, like I took my family to Europe for three months and lived in Lyon, France. Uh, this was a couple, 2017. The, we wanted to expose the kids to that kind of experience, full flexibility. And while that's enjoyable, and I really enjoy, you know, the financial benefits, the perks, the flexibility, the, con the control that we had and, and, and all that. At some point, I asked myself, what am I trying to accomplish? Do I, am I trying to build something that's not just like good and good enough, but something that's great, something that is lasting, something that is like literally on the world stage going to be one of the biggest brands in an industry. And to do that, you need a lot of capital. So my co-founder and I had enough capital to do maybe one or two acquisitions. We do not have enough capital to go buy. Well, we, we bought five and we, are, we expect to do four more this year. So, you know, we don't have enough capital to do that. So you have to bring in partners. So the, the question is finding the right, how do I find the right partners that have alignment of goals? I will say that for me personally, that was, a, you know, that was difficult in, you know, in terms of how I, I knew Princeton were the right partners, but would they still give me the flexibility that I enjoy? And would they stay super focused on just the value creation and not the time? Or like, where's Scott Abbott today? Okay. 
So I've consciously made the decision. I'm going to live my life the way I'm going to live my life. Okay. And if I don't provide that enough value, then I can be replaced in this company. And I'm very comfortable with that. And so I just focus on providing value. I, I, I focus on how do I create something that is valuable to everyone? And, you know, whether I'm living in France or whether I, I actually live in Canada three months of the year. So June, July, and August, I have a summer home there. And I work from there the, all those three months. And so I, I've been doing, I've been keeping the flexibility I had from when I was, uh, you know, just two founders running the business. And I just now have added more fuel in the tank to really, to, to manage all the acquisitions and really approach those from a perspective of, like, I don't know everything about buying companies. I know a little bit. I know enough to, to maybe make a lot of mistakes. For instance, so many times having them involved on the acquisition front is critical. Like it's not just important, it's getting those right, mission critical. So for me, it was like, I, I knew I needed really smart people that understood the art of acquiring companies, integrating them into our businesses, negotiating those deals correctly, papering them all properly, the actual fundamentals of what amount of debt versus equity you're using, the instruments, how you're doing all of that was really, really important. So I needed to have a partner that could, could handle that for me. And Princeton did that and does do that. And, uh, and we have, you know, in, in Princeton, it's a little unique. You've met Doug and yeah. you've, I don't know if you've met Jim yet or not. Who's yeah, the other we, sh we shot with Doug, Jim, and then okay. a bunch of other Porcos. Um, yep. so we have a really good feel for the personalities and the culture. Yeah. They, I'd say they have more of a venture vibe than they are a private equity vibe is how I just put it. Like, and that comes from their, you know, where they came from as an organization, where they started from and, and they themselves are entrepreneurs. Like they started a fund from scratch, right? And now they've raised over $750 million to put to work in franchising. Super impressive. And so, uh, and, and they've got something they got to prove. Like funds live and die by the returns they create for their investors. And so I got in early within fund one where I know that there's a, a massive pressure and focus on performance because that's how their fund will survive. And so we have this natural alignment. Like, I want the business to grow. I want to become one of the biggest brands that ever lived in home service franchising. And so we have this alignment that occurs from, um, you know, that, that understanding. What, how do you think about being a quality husband, father, and leader of a company? And like, if you had to, be radically candid with yourself on a scale of one to 10 for each of those three categories. Like, how would you rate yourself and how do you think about it? I'm also asking because I created an Excel sheet for my wife. Like, Hey, listen, 2024, I want you to rate me every Sunday at 8 PM. Um, yeah. like, we, have an, we have an annual review of, Hey, last year, was I a good husband or not? What can I get better? Uh -huh. And like one of those, one of those annual reviews, she said like, hey, you know, you are gone too much. And mm -hmm. never home at dinner with the kids. You're never home at dinner with me. And that was like the first year of entrepreneurship. And it was yeah. also kind of like, hey, if we're going to struggle, let's struggle together. And then that's why we started this business together. We're like the best oh, yeah. hours during the day, most days during the week are spent away from the person we care most about. Yeah. This doesn't make any sense. Let's change yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. How so about I love where you're, you're coming to, right, Jordan? Like, And, and the pressures of being a Port Co. Yeah. where Princeton Equity Group made an investment. Uh, you know, it could be, I could easily, if I wanted to, give way too much time to this company. 
and not give my family what it needs. You know, I, I almost wish my five kids were here and that they could just tell you what they thought in terms of how I rate me and my presence as a father. I hope that they'd give me a decent score. I, I don't want to be pretentious and, and or even prideful in some way and say that I'm a super dead by any means. I try really hard. There's no question. I, I invest in my in my family. Um, yeah, yeah, so rating myself as a CEO and father, I don't know. I sure hope I'm in that eight plus range on both, right? Uh, I don't think I could be a 10 CEO and a 10 father. I don't think those things yeah. can coexist. I don't think that, I don't think it's possible. Um, like but, Elon but Musk in the world, the guys no, that I, do incredible things, they make massive sacrifices elsewhere. And I, and I can't do that. But I, I, I would push back. I would think you can if you have well-defined, a well-defined definition of a 10, of here are the expectations of a 10, sure. team, investors, you know, does this look like a 10? And if we're, it is as opposed to like, I'm not going to be putting in a hundred hours a week, because I think I would actually think that makes it counterproductive as a, as a leader, because then it also message is the wrong thing to the team, but also I haven't built a company in 900 locations. You have, um, so, well, but, but like just thinking like in terms of, I think you're, I think conceptually you're saying is right. I would agree with you that you, that you can be an amazing CEO and amazing father. And these two things don't have to be kind of counteropposed. But I'd also make the argument that uh, as a C, you know, to be a super CEO, if you want to call it that, the guys who changed this world, you know, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, the people who have literally changed this world because they are obsessed with their with they're doing in their business. I don't want to be that kind of person. Is what I'm trying to tell you. Like I, I so to be that, I'll never be that because Scott Abbott is not willing to give up this that I have at home. It's too important to me. So I try to integrate as much as I can. Like I mentioned to you earlier, I bring my kids on business trips. I, um, I think you could argue that you have changed an industry within franchisors and given people a model, especially within home services, to be that Steve Jobs tier within that niche. And, yeah, I'm, I, and I'm here's what... Yeah, well, and, I'm, and I, I'm doing and, my best. And I, I think about that because like, you know, any ambitious person earlier in their career, like, all right, it's got to have a B in it or you're going home. If it has yeah. a, it's millions, sorry, you have not succeeded in life. And then as I started to start the nonprofit and this business, it's evolved to like, you know, how do I measure success for 51 vets? We have 350 oh, yeah. We've gotten, you know, 200 people jobs and in my working with veterans is like, how many more veterans do I need to help to where I consider it a success versus do I need 10 relationships that are a 10 out of 10 in terms of like connection? Do I need 50? Mm -hmm. Do I need a hundred? And it started to make like, I don't care about building the largest marketing firm in the world. I care about like, first and foremost, does our team like genuinely like what they do and like the people that we are with? And do they know how much Jing and I care about them? Mm. In the first four years of our business, it was not that because we were like, like any entrepreneur, how do you keep the lights on? You got to sell, you got to keep the client happy. And then we learn like, oh man, like we suck as managers. We suck as leaders. And I, but I can say looking back last year, like 
it's a completely different shift. Mm. Yeah, you, you're arriving in that in that moment of. I, I think every entrepreneur has this happen at some point. There's a personal mission statement that exists in Scott, inside Scott Abbott that's been there for a long time. And through my journey of business and living life, I've arrived at why I want to be on this earth and what I want to give this earth. The people I'm involved with, I'm about empowering people. It's actually the mission of our organization. We empower our franchise partners in the home service industry. That's the mission of Five Star Franchising. And if I were to look at now me personally, like what, what do I get the most value? I've got a bucket list of 100 things I want to do in my lifetime. I have a family mission statement. And if I were to go through those with you, you'd see the same vibe. I want to empower my children to be successful. I want them to understand that success is not monetary. It, it, there's no question that, you know, we, we all crave validation in the form of some kind of number we're chasing. Like to have a billion dollar exit, for example, Jordan, is uh, a validation that I'm a great CEO. Okay. And, I, and these, these are great goals. And in fact, we have a B in one of our missions, which we want to create a billion dollars in system-wide sales. It's reflective of empowering our franchisees of achieving their goal. Because for us, that's what we're talking about. How much revenue can we bring into our franchisees' businesses? And can we give them businesses that, that they can provide for their families, for their employees, that's meaningful, and it becomes a vehicle to what they want to do in their life. So and we're, we're getting very, like, um, I don't know, philosophical, I think, in this conversation, which I wasn't expecting, but I'm really, really enjoying. Uh, and to come back to the question you asked is like, how, you know, how do you, how would you rate yourself in business versus, versus family? I, I, that's the, the measuring stick is would the people I work with say that Scott Abbott is empowering me in some way in my career, in my role as a, as a father one day, or as a, as a member of this family in, my, in helping me decide what school to go to as a franchisee because he's helping build my business and, and then they, he's created tools and systems that help me be successful. He's increasing the odds of success for the people in the organization. Like if those are the measurements that I'd say that those are the measurements I would use. And, and I'd say that, yeah, we are doing a really good job. We could do a lot better. We could do so much more, but we're doing a really good job of it. And How do you um, structure with your, you as a husband and you as a father that times so you're like, all right, it might not necessarily be the, quantity of time but how do you focus on being a good husband being a good father like is it hey from 6 30 till 7 30 there isn't a cell phone at that table in the morning or like how do you guys structurally do it yeah i've been married for 25 years going to 26 this august uh you know the we've been working on this for a long time but right like right now you were talking about right now what, what does my life look like to try and make sure this is happening we have a scripture study every morning we get together as a family, the breakfast table at seven in the morning, we spend 15, 20 minutes together reading. We say our, our prayers together as a family. We do a dinner every day. I'd say eight, 80% of the time. So, you know, five to six out of, the, out of the seven days of the week, I'm home around five, three, six o'clock. It's a dinner. There's a, there's a prayer that's happening. There's a conversation. Uh, it's what, you know, the, tell us three things about your day. What's happening in your life? What's great? What's not so great? And like, kind of like your mastermind group you mentioned earlier. We do it with our kids. Um, we do have planned vacation time where just our family goes and does something together quarterly. And my wife and I, I'd say we spend, you know, we've taken up different things together. Like for, right now she's into skiing, snowboarding. And so we'll do little dates where we just go ski and snowboard together. So two of us, and it is a riot. 
Like it's just spending quality time together. We travel a lot. I don't know. I mean, I've been to maybe 55 countries at this time. I, one day I added it up. It's a lot. I, we, we've traveled the world. And we try to make sure that time happens. Like we just went to Tahiti, to Tahiti for um, 10 days. It went to Bora Bora. And, uh, you know, an amazing experience together. Just absolutely. It sounds lovely. like you are intentional about your marriage time. As opposed oh, to like, yeah. she and I are in the business together. We're like, wait, your birthday's this Friday? Oh, man. <laughs> Does that mean we're just not doing work that day? <laughs> yeah. Like, where are we going to go eat? <laughs> like, we have to, we, we have not we need to be more intentional um which actually goes back to me as a husband being more intentional because uh-huh. um, interesting the division of labor in our business you know jing is an amazing integrator in terms of mm. the eos terminology yeah we use us yeah and i'm that i'm visionary sales can connect the dots but where does these how do these dots actually become implemented and executed she's everything like client yeah. execution invoices oh we have to have a 401k plan <laughs> and then the same thing for the family and then it's like wait a second now how so i need to step up in terms of as a husband as a business mm-hmm. partner and that was part of our annual review of just like cool let's lay out these accountabilities like we went through our eos process in december oh yeah as we're doing the accountabilities for the team we're like Oh man, we should be doing this for the family, but I'm also really afraid to do this for the family because <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> but rip off that band aid. <laughs> yeah, you're you're on the right track. I'm a little bit jealous, frankly. I think the younger version of me was um, was more about hustle, grit, hard work, and less about quality of time. Understand, you know, trading off a little too much too early, frankly into the business and entrepreneurship and not enough to, for the family. But um, yeah, the, we try, you know, off of, go ahead. Yeah, we, we try it. We, we do our best to make sure we have planned events and there's um, you know, we, we live together as a family at this summer home every, every year. And we've been doing that for uh, it's been, since our marriage, 25 years, we've taken at least a month. Now it's two and a half, almost three months. And that time is super high quality time with all the kids. And you know, a lot of, Adventures, mountain biking, wake surfing, surfing in Hawaii. There's just, we always have a plan every quarter. Something's going to happen where we're family time and adventure and it's, um, it's bonding. Yeah. That's really cool. How, um, so let's kind of go back to five-star and building five-star franchising. Like where did it, where did this brand start? How did you guys start it? How did it grow? Well, it all started with five-star painting, our very first painting franchise system. Okay, it's a painting company. We just painted houses, res repaint work, uh, super simple. And if I were to go back to like the whole thesis that we had and why we started it, it came down to what we realized was that the home services industry was completely fragmented. This is 2004. There are hundreds and hundreds of painters in every single market. Everyone's using yellow pages to find customers and they're all, they are all horrible at customer experience. In fact, I'd already actually argue that today, even with all the evolution that's happened in the home services industry, most home service companies are horrible at answering their phones, responding to texts, responding to emails, scheduling things properly. They're horrible at it. And so we just realized that if we could nail that part of the business and come from it from a very scientific approach, like very quantitative approach, that we could create an engine, which we call Pronexus today that could empower 
our franchisees to be extremely successful. And that was the thesis. We started in 2005, sold our first franchisee. It totally worked. Who knew? Just answer your phone. Who knew that all you had to do to be successful in painting in 2005 was answer your phone? Because at that point in time, I called 5,000 painters across the U.S. and Canada to kind of understand what the experience looked like. Answer rates were 20%. Eight out of 10 times, you couldn't get a hold of the person you wanted a hold of to get a bid on a house painting job. So our answer rates are about 96%. We have about a 4% abandonment rate. So right there, you just talked about almost a 5X of re on return on investments for advertising. But now you take it to the next level and this thesis just kind of grows, right? Well, now you've mastered inbound. Can you master outbound? Can you make sure that whenever someone, if you buy a lead from an aggregator like HomeAdvisor or if it comes from the web, can you engage with that lead within a minute? And can you do it in a way that's, that's, that is systematic, that has the highest level of conversion? And then can you track everything perfectly so you know exactly where, where the leads come from? You've got tracking numbers on your Google AdWords campaign, on your local business listing, on your Facebook campaign, on your direct mail listing. You, you have everything down to a science. So you can give to a franchisee their ROI on any form of advertising. And if you approach that correctly, you now have a business that can be replicated quickly. Well, what I've just told you is our secret. That's it. We've mastered the art of making the phone ring. When it does ring, answering it, enabling any form of communication possible, texting, online scheduling, email, and simplify all that and centralize it so that franchisees focus on customer implementation, execution, not on the very front end. That is it. And it's... um. When it's done right, uh, like our, our greatest success story, we've got a franchisee doing about, I think this year he did 11 or $12 million in revenue in bathrooms in one year. That business was about two years ago was around five, four and a half, five million. Like think of the growth he's had over the three years, four, eight, 11. Like it's incredible, but it's because we have, the systems allow them to scale and build something that's, that is just, you know, among the best there is in whatever that category in that market. And so that, that's that, that's where Pfizer franchising came from. You know, we sold the painting company. We kept our bathroom company. We kept our Pronexus engine. And that became the platform. And then we started just adding on brands where we're doing the same thing for them that we did. Which, for have you started these bands or brought them because you have Bio One? 1-800 yeah. textiles, 1-800 packouts, gotcha yeah. covered, mosquito shield, and the bath solutions. solutions. So there's six yeah. brands that, and ProNexus is the, the foundation for sales and marketing. That's it. You, which ones have you started? Which ones have you bought? What, what has that been like? Yeah. So ProNexus, five-star uh, paint, or well, we still five-star paint. ProNexus, five-star painting, and five-star bath solutions are the brands we started that we really grew. There's a few other brands we also started in franchising, frankly, or we're, you know, very early on, uh, Joe Homebuyer is one of them. We did a real estate concept that, um, is actually doing really, really well. It's, uh, it's all about wholetailing. It's called, it's helping people find houses that are, that are not on the market and then taking that house and putting it a contract and then selling that contract to people who want to fix and flip. So we're creating inventory for those who want to get in the real estate game, but they don't want to buy stuff through real estate agents. 
Mm. Uh, they've got about 85, 90 locations now. We started that a few years ago. Um, at one point in time, we were the owners of Sub-Zero Ice Cream. It was a retail, retail concept that was, um, uh, it just does ice cream to liquid nitrogen. And we ran that business for a couple of years. We had another concept called Franchise Foundry, which was a consulting investment group where we had about eight concepts that we were part owners in. So we were not majority owners. We were the investor. So sub 50%, kind of like venture investor, and then also advisor because we knew how to franchise to all kinds of different concepts. We had a divorce consult consulting company. We had a, uh, a cell phone <laughs> fixing company. We had a, a hot tub company. Uh, we had, I mean, there was, I, this is going back to like 2009. It's been a while. A lot of different concepts. Um, and, you know, learning so much from all of them. What we finally arrived at, though, was this conviction around home services is all we're going to ever do from now on. You know, we've kind of done this restaurant stuff. We've done real estate. We've done consulting and other kinds of concepts. After looking at all of it, we realized that, that home service franchising is the most, uh, has, has, has the highest return from what I can tell for your investments. So the average investment in all these concepts is about $140,000. You can get into it's business for $140,000. Yeah, what I have no idea like the economics. I, I just learned this literally through the Princeton Equity Project and going to five different companies. Yeah. So what are, what are the different groups of investment? Is it, I think, the franchise fee, mm -hmm. investment slash build out fee, yep. and then the royalty fee? Are, yeah, you, are there you, any others? Yeah. So your hundred for us, the hundred and forty thousand dollars goes towards the franchise fee and your startup costs, your van, your vehicle wrap your technology systems, stuff like that. Your first couple months of advertising. Okay, that's all. We don't have a build out in our concepts because we don't do retail, which is why we did it intentionally. Not that you can't do retail. There's lots of guys that do it really well, but we realized for us with our experience that, that uh, this was the best way of doing it. But for like After bio you, one, you need a van and you need the equipment, but you don't need an actual retail store. That's right. You work out of your house You have a, or you have a storage facility. That's it. Almost all of our concepts of the six, almost all of them are like that. There's a slight variation. Packouts does have a warehouse where they store people's you know contents while there's and there's been a fire. So, but it's not retail facing. Like no one shows up at the store. There's no like branding done on the building to make sure that it works right. Like it's like you see the facility can store stuff. Uh, and textiles is similar. There's it's like a dry cleaning concept that is not retail facing. It's it's supporting. It's B two B. We support contractors. And we clean their textiles when there's in a fire. Um, once you've purchased and you're paying a royalty, it's that percentage of between five and eight percent that you're paying back to the franchisor for all of the IP, all the support, all the systems. The way I kind of like to express it is there's two ways of thinking of this. First of all, if you're working for somebody, you may have been receiving 0.001% of the revenue. That was your piece, your slice of the, the total pie. When you become a franchisee, you now get 94%, 93%, 92% of the revenue. That's yours now. You have full control of that. That small sliver is now going to pay for a huge back office system that you had at your, at your white collar job. Like if you're working in a business, you had an accounting department, you had a marketing department, you had an IT department. Well, in franchising, you, you, you get all that. They're centralized, and we are we have kind of the aces in their places in those different areas. And now you're just paying for a small portion 
from your royalty for that entire back office support. And so, so we're out there to go ahead. Yeah, because I'm trying to think about <clears throat> 51 Vets, the nonprofit that I started, which really helps get these veterans from high-performing careers in you know, special operations or aviation, we're trying to get them into like investment banking, private equity, venture consulting. We have not been talking about franchising. And I think a lot of it is because the, the economics are like, are, what are the economics? Is it a good opportunity or am I just going to be running one location? And, you know, they just want to be doing something else, but like, what are the, what's the upside for them? Let's say they start, you know, uh, a mosquito shield or bio one or whatever, yeah. you know, Year one, listen, it's going to do X amount of million. You're going to take home is going to be a hundred thousand. Okay, cool. But here's what's going to happen in year two or year three, as you, be, you know, own Northwest Georgia, mm -hmm. you know, Alpharetta and the others. And, um, but can you kind of walk through that? Cause to, to see what is the actual upside opportunity financially, how much is it average? I mean, you have all these concepts, but average take home pay into their bank account. And how does that kind of scale? Yeah. So I wish I could tell you the answer to that question. I could, like I know the answer in many cases, but in franchising, this is very, very regulated. I can't actually tell you what you can make. Mm. Every franchise concept you've mentioned has what we call an item 19. It's the earnings claims. It's a legal jargon. It's a legal document. It's like a hundred pages long and it has a massive disclosure. It's like buying a stock or an IPO or something. It is in some cases, 200 pages long. It has all these disclosures in it. Who are the management team? What's their history? What's the cost of startup? Where's your money going? Any litigation, all these disclosures, right? How many locations have been sold? Who's open still? How many have closed? What's the success rate of the concept? It's all disclosed. So I, I know the answers, but I can't, it's all in the in, in the actual earnings, uh, the, uh, the FDD it's called, the franchise disclosure document. So each of these concepts has a, a item 19 that will, can tell you what the average franchisee makes in what year, so in some cases we tell we talk about pay, uh, take home pay. In some cases we don't because we just don't have the information. I don't know what they're making. Like ultimately the the franchisee isn't disclosed to us what they are making. But that's what's that's what's there. Philosophically though, what I can speak to is what you get as a as a and why you'd want to get involved in the franchise if you were ex military is if you like systems, you like processes, you like having an organization and a team that can support you. It provides that. The success rate, and you can probably independently verify this, just go online and research it, right? I've been told, and I think this is accurate, that 80% of businesses fail within three to four years. So most startups fail within that time frame. It's because business is very difficult. And if you compare that to franchising, what percentage of franchisees fail in that same time period, the, the success rate is way higher. And so I, I, I want to say our failure rate is below 5% if I were to average across all six brands. So your success rate goes way up because you have a recipe. I actually have instructions you can follow that if you do will yield more than likely the result that we're expecting. And so you're just increasing your odds of winning. Um, and you're part of a community and that, that, that is doing the same thing you're doing. So if you want to call someone up that's in Mosquito Shield and say, hey, how did you grow your business to $2 million? They'll tell you, well, I've been in business for eight years. Here's what I've done. Here's my margins. Here's my P&L. We have, they have a little flight groups. They get together where eight people get together and talk about their business. They come to conventions, regional meetings, where you can get to know people that have done it. And you can, and you can try and model what they've done. So franchising provides that, 
you know, that that methodology to connect with people who are who it's working for. And uh, you've got this, you know, we've got, a, I think, 150 employees at this point at Five Star Franchising that are, that's our purpose every day. We get up, how do we help our franchisees succeed? So, you know, on the, when you look at your career and building all these brands, what are some of the biggest mistakes you have made that franchisors can learn from in building out their concepts? And what are some of the biggest successes that might've been a result of making the mistakes, but what are some yeah. of the key takeaways for franchisors who are trying to build their own brands? So there's, I, I put these into two different groups. So first of all, in my, franchising in my view is giving someone a recipe. It's not saying, here's my logo. Now go figure it out. Right. Like that, that actually happens a lot. There's a home service concept. It's in restoration, for example. Here's my logo. Now go find the work and make it happen. Okay. If you're a franchisor, I think you have to view that the, your responsibility to franchisees is to centralize as many things you, as you can that you can get done for them better than they can do for themselves. It's kind of like government in some ways. Like it's the responsibility of government to give people roads and safety, you know, police, roads, electricity, the the fundamentals of a society and a franchisor does a, a similar kind of thing. What can I give a franchisee that, you know, they could build a road on their self, for example, they could pay the money. We could, as a citizen, build our own roads, but it's too expensive. We're all using this road. Why don't we all pay for it? Tax me. We'll all come together and make that work. And so franchising is kind of like that. It gives, you know, so for us, as an example, we, we centralized the customer experience through Pronexus lead generation, marketing responsibilities, it, in some cases, we build technology that they can use. It's custom to them. In some cases, we take existing technology, customize it to them. And a website, right? Like a, a business owner could go spend $150,000 on their website. Or we can spend $150,000 on the website, maintain and manage the whole thing. And you're only paying a very small portion of that because you're one of 900 franchisees. So you get the idea, right? It's this idea of shared assets that we all can take benefit from that the franchisor is creating on our behalf. So that is the duty of a franchisor. So there's also the trap. So a, a franchisor who does not do those things, who doesn't create value for their franchisees is, is simply not gonna make it. Like franchisees need, they need to know that when they pay you a royalty, they're getting value back for it. So that's our, our job. The uh, mistakes I've made come pretty early, I would say in my career, you can, you can make the mistake of believing that just because you own the brand, you're the founder of the brand, you're the CEO of the brand, that you can tell franchisees what to do and they'll listen to you. It would be somewhat logical, actually, Jordan. Someone paid me $50,000 to have 125,000 households in Salt Lake City, right? They paid me to educate them on how to run that business, which I did. You would think then that if I said to them, you need to advertise on Facebook with this video that they would do it because they paid me for this knowledge. They don't, they simply do not. And so what you learn is yes, at the very, very early stage, franchisees are very uh, moldable and they're very attentive to what you have to tell them, but give them six months to a year, they don't wanna to listen to you any longer. So now you have to, start, you have to start leading from a different methodology, not from authority, 
Just because you have the authority doesn't mean you can use it with franchisees. Your agreement may st- tell you that you can do something that doesn't mean you should do it. What you need to come at them with is show them how it works. Demonstrate that using a video on Facebook works in your market. Here is the case study. Let me show you what happened. We did a six-month pilot with these 15 locations. Here's the ROI that they it generated for them. You can lead a horse to water. You can't make them drink. You can lead a franchisee to the opportunity, but you can't make them do it. So when you when you start to internalize that, you come at things from a different approach. It's now how do I – everything we do is, has to be tracked. It has to be done and thought about in the form of a case study. Can I show and demonstrate the value to the franchisee? And then they will follow. And we are no longer, we're not, we aren't, uh, we are not their boss. They're not our employees. We are their coaches, which actually, Jordan, I think you can appreciate as an entrepreneur. When you're, as a very young entrepreneur, you, I used to believe my employees would do what they, I told them to do because I was their boss from a place of authority. And just because I have that authority doesn't mean I can use it or that it would even work. What I've learned is, no, no. My role as a CEO is actually much more a coach to my employees as well. So what I've learned in franchising has actually become more of what I've learned how to manage people and how to inspire people to do things. I'm their coach. I'm just trying to help them achieve their goals in their careers. And by helping them do that in their lives and in their responsibilities, they help me achieve the mission of the organization. I love it. So you've gone from franchise dictator to franchise coaching. (laughs) No, but it it, it is an interesting thing because especially when you're starting the business, you just have to get so many things done so fast. You just like, do this, do this. Oh, got to put out that fire. Oh, here's a $100,000 sales opportunity. Oh, what are we doing for healthcare benefits? Or do we even have a 401k program? What is, wait, we get, wait, when are taxes due? Like, in that just go mode, as opposed yeah. to taking the time, which takes more time to actually coach, yes. but it creates a, a better environment for everyone. Yeah. And I think the, the lessons learned there are lessons that you would apply in your own family. As a father, you have authority. You could tell your kids what to do. That'll work for a little while. Then to their 11, 12, that doesn't work anymore. Right. What, so the, the journey in franchising and entrepreneurship and business in being a father, they're all interconnected because they all involve people, all of them. And so this art form of how do you inspire and lead people? Uh, when I sold my business in 2015, which was the, first, it was the fourth sale I had had, but the first real big one, um, I real I started to take my attention I had on my company and I took all that, that attention and I put it on my family. And I started trying to lead my family like I would lead my business. And it was, it resulted in some beautiful things, some beautiful experiences where, you know, it was no longer, at that point, my oldest son, I think was 15, right? So everyone was kind of just starting to get to go through those teenage years. Um, it, was, it was a great opportunity for me to just kind of reset how I need to be as a father. And it, they're all, these are all connected. It's all involving people. How do you lead and inspire people? I love it. Cause it, is similar to like the Montessori philosophy, which our kids are have been in Montessori school yeah. for a while. And oh, it's cool. like, they, they teach each other and it, I need yeah. to remember to be consistent at home as opposed to like, go do this, go do this. We have three minutes left until that minivan needs to be open. And we are out that gr- like, just kind of like coaching <laughs> them of like, well, how would you solve this? Cause they know uh-huh. how to do it and they're doing it at school. 
we're just not being consistent at home. Sure. So yeah. My key takeaway is to be a better coach. Yeah. 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 That's it. Well, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you taking this time to to do it. And I know we've gone uh, everything from business to family and everywhere in between. It's been enjoyable. Thank you for the invitation. Awesome. I appreciate it, Jordan. Awesome. Thanks so much.